0: This podcast is brought to you by A.J. Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by A.J. Bell Media, part of A.J. Bell.
1: Hi, welcome to the Money and Markets podcast, in a week which has seen major geopolitical uncertainty and a whole load of questions about why inflation is so sticky here in the UK. Joining me is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny.
0: Hi Dan yes after a weekend of we can only call shenanigans in russia upbeat downbeat data out of china and big questions being levelled at water companies especially Thames water also supermarket bosses including sainsbury's and tesco being quizzed by ministers we're going to take the temperature of a somewhat lopsided market
1: Now, we've also had some mixed earnings updates to dig into, including some of the good uh, parts of Carnival and the not-so-good with Walgreens. Another week, another roll of the dice on the giant High Street Monopoly board that is Fraser's, and we'll be looking at which companies that business has been taking stakes in.
0: Plus, Dan has been chatting to Ben Ritchie about Dunedin Income Trust's 150th anniversary and how the investment trust has evolved over the years.
1: Let's kick off and have a look at the buffeting markets. Uh, I think the first thing we brought up, it's worth talking about, it didn't seem to have too too big an impact, was what's going on with Russia. I think by the time the you know we had a weekend of um, sort of you know, intense drama, by the time markets opened on Monday morning, um, everything just seems to have been sort of settled down and markets just shrugged it off, which is a, a bit of a weird one, don't you think, Danny?
0: Well, it was kind of hard to know for investors what on earth to think about it and what on earth to do about it. And I did see that sort of off the back of expectation that maybe the war in Ukraine wouldn't go on for quite as long. A lot of sort of defence stocks had sort of fallen back expectation. Maybe there wouldn't need to be as much spend. um, That kind of turned around. We also had gas prices rising quite a bit. um, But that sort of levelled off and, and a sort of tiny blip with the oil price, but But I think for a lot of investors, it was just a bit like, well, what can we do? You know, so much is going on in Russia and we just don't quite know how it is going to work out what to believe. So we'll just sort of tread water a bit.
1: China's also been the focus of attention as well. I mean, you go back to the the start of the year, everyone was excited about where, where that market was going. Relaxed COVID restrictions, you know, the economy can have a big boom. You know, got to the halfway point in the year and thinking actually it's not it's not quite as good as people thought or certainly not sort of sustainable. Um, so there's been sort of lots of ups and downs. If you look at some of the Chinese sort of funds, investment trusts, they they've they've been falling for months. But then, you know, of course, you know what happens in China. If, if things suddenly look a bit bleak and expected, you just get the government coming in with new stimulus programs. So um, we, we had you know, the administration promising it's going to deliver that 5% growth. Uh, of course, that given a bit of boost to miners. But um, yeah, I think that anyone who's got money in that part of the world needs to just to ex- expect the unexpected, I think.
0: And, of course, we had industrial profits tumbling. We had uh, data on that out today. And you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the expectation was there. I must admit, I I tipped China as being sort of one of the big areas of growth for the year because it was just expected that we would see the same kind of hurtling out of the gates once lockdown ended that we saw the first time. And it just hasn't materialised. I mean, I think you know, there are a whole load of tensions between China and the u s. to take into account. but but also just inflation has played a huge part in this story and you know expectation that generally the global economy is going to slow that demand for some of the products that China produces it is going to soften considerably. so, Yeah, I mean this sort of rush to achieve five percent growth. I I wouldn't bet against that happening because, as you say, whenever we sort of get to a sluggish point, that the uh, the authorities tend to put in some stimulus, and that's certainly what they've promised again. But you know, it it really so far hasn't materialized. now, let's dig in to some company specifics because it, it, it does seem to be that at the moment for markets, they're still focusing very much on rates and inflation. So uh, I know that you have been looking at a bookings boom for carnival cruises.
1: Yeah, well, it's not just Carnival Cruises. It's you know Royal Caribbean Cruises came out recently and said, um, you know, things were doing really well. I mean, the, the sector's been been amazing for investors this year. Royal Caribbean hit uh, the shares hit the highest level since February twenty twenty. Of course, this is all about um, yeah, the big increase in demand to to get away. You know, COVID is now firmly in the rearview mirror. These, and these companies are saying, you know, they're doing incredibly well, that you know, people are paying higher prices to go on cruises. Once they're on board for their trip, they're spending way more money than they did pre-pandemic. Um, yeah, and, and of course, carnival shares have done you know incredibly well as well, up 75% so far this year. So it came out with these numbers, second quarter numbers a few days ago. Um, smaller losses than expected. Revenue of 4.9 billion in the period. But weirdly, the shares um crashed by about 10% on this news. And of course, anyone just looking at the sort of the headline numbers go, you know, what's going on here? And it's all to do with the guidance for third quarter profits would be a bit below expectations. And of course, they're suffering from high costs, marketing, you know, you know, the, the amount of money they need to spend to get these customers in. Also, labour costs are still really high. Is but but weirdly, the stock then rebounded by 10% the following day and another 5% the day after. So um, you know, kind of all over the place. But I think you know, there's definitely been seen by investors this year as the cruise sector has been the hot sector to chuck your money in.
0: I mean, certainly we had um, results from Saga just last week and, and they're cruise bit of the business was doing incredibly well, whereas the insurance bit of the business wasn't doing so well. And I know you're going to talk a bit about car insurance a bit later in the pod. Um, I want to look at a company that really has upset investors, um, and that's Walgreens Boots Alliance. It slashed its earning forecast, raised its cost savings target, basically – it is facing a sort of perfect storm. It's got weakening demand for COVID-related products, a huge amount of consumer caution in the United States, a lot of consumers really hunting out value. And all of that led shares tumbling to their lowest level in 11 years after the earnings update. Now, of course, here in the UK, we know that um, Walgreens was it put the for sale sign up over its UK business, Boots, um, but then took it down again because it couldn't get the price tag that it wanted to attach to the business. So there was a lot of interest, but no one willing to pay quite that price, perhaps because of concern over the rising cost of living and inflation. Now, just looking at Boots' performance Its sales were up 14% like for like um, over the last three months. And the gateway, the online gateway is finally delivering on its promise with I think it was about 25% of sales happening through there now. And, you know, for a while when you went in post-COVID, it looked a bit like You know, it was a jumble sale in there. The stores were empty. It all just looked a bit unloved, but it spent quite a bit of money, particularly with its everyday essentials range, which really does hone in on that value consumer And also value skincare and makeup ranges. I mean, that is the perfect pick-me-up for a consumer looking for a bit of lipstick therapy. And of course, you know, it has a massive footprint, loads and loads and loads of stores. And it was really interesting that, as part and parcel of the update there was the announcement that it was going to close 300 stores, boot stores in the UK, and 150 Walgreens stores over in the US over the next year. So that's stores that are sort of within five kilometres of each other. I mean, it, it will still be a huge business. There'll still be um, almost 2,000 stores left at the end of all of this. But, you know... In some ways, this is exactly what is fueling the sleepless nights for the Bank of England, because we still are seeing consumer resilience in the UK. It will also be fueling something of sleepless nights, I think, for Walgreens bosses, because as I say, that they pulled down the for sale sign, whether or not um, they could be tempted back in at the moment, it's certainly paused, but you know, times have changed. And Walgreen itself is facing a big challenge. It is trying to really change its focus, put cash into its new health services business, providing, you know, doctor stuff and, and that sort of thing in store. And that's something that's being seen as a real game changer for the company's future. So, you know, maybe it would be prepared to negotiate a little, but, um, you know, for, for Walgreen's it's going to be a tough quarter, I think. And it sort of sets the tone for maybe things getting tougher uh, for the US consumer as well as for the UK consumer. But it's been a bit of a mixed bag, I think, Dan. And if you dig into markets, it's all looking a bit lopsided. So maybe at a quick glance, investors might not be seeing the true picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, Danny, you know how the us stock market has done incredibly well this year um yeah you, you probably know but there might be some of our listeners who are not aware that actually this performance has been driven by just a handful of companies like nvidia and meta but actually you probably want to look at how the UK market is also performing because there's some real similarities here. Um, You know, at, at the top end, you've got names like Aston Martin are up 120% this year. Rolls Royce is up by two thirds. Um, names like Martin Spencer, Whiz Air, they're all sort of 50%. And you think, okay, this is this is all going well, but actually, I can see today there's 214 names in the FTSE 350 index have lost money. Investors this year. Um, so it's definitely, you know, it's just it's it's a real dividing line here. So you've got a handful of really well-known companies doing incredibly well, but lots of them are letting people down. So names like Dr. Martins down 36% this year, Direct Line down by about the same. Um, Vodafone down by 12. And and I think that. There will be lots of investors who are frustrated by what's going on. You know, the headlines are saying, um, you know, parts of the world are doing incredibly well, but you know, I certainly know. For I, I look at my own portfolio, it, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't come across as things, you know, firing in all sorts of cylinders. So, and I think that if you've got rates going up again, um, there's this kind of fear that you know w- what might happen in the second half. Um, I, I don't know. I think. It, it, if you're an investor in this you know, I'm sure you know the last three years has told you to be incredibly patient, stick with it. Uh, I think that message just has to ring true again. Um, really not quite sure what's going to be happening in the second half of the year uh, for markets but you, know, you can definitely see that there are pockets of um, quite quite big share price declines um and I guess you just can't rule out con- sort of continuation of that that trend going forward.
0: No, and inflation, of course, still playing a huge part in the fortunes of, well, all of our companies, let's be honest. And whether some are profiteering from the current situation has been on the mind of government ministers. And we had uh, a really interesting um committee hearing yesterday where we had four supermarket bosses, Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda and Morrison's all sat next to each other, all kind of facing a firing squad from um, the business and trade committee who were giving them a real grilling about how prices were being passed on. Whether or not there were some occasions where maybe, you know, price cuts should be passed on more quickly, why food prices were still rising. I mean, we had the latest figures from the British Retail Consortium. We, we get loads of figures pointing out food inflation They're all different, but they do all seem to show the same trend, and that is the expectation that food inflation has peaked. So food prices rose by 14.6% in the year, according to the BRC, down from 15.4% in May. But, of course, that just means that prices aren't rising quite as quickly as they were, but they are still rising. Now, a lot of the fact that food inflation is slowing, is actually down to cost cutting from supermarkets. There have been huge price wars which have been initiated. So I was taking a look at some of the areas that, um, you know, we've seen big cuts. And um, so Sainsbury's have lowered the price of a packet of 500 gram cornflakes from 85 pence to 69 pence. Morrison's, 200 grams of Beef mince 5% fat, now 2 pounds pence from £2.35. I mean, the, the list goes on. They're all promising to price match Aldi and Lidl. And it's that price matching situation. It's the fact that you have a very limited number of businesses all effectively doing the same thing that MPs were asking questions about. Now, supermarkets, actually, they, they came out pretty well yesterday, I think. I mean... They had the numbers. They were pointing to the fact that profits had been cut, um, that margins really wafer thin. I mean, Tesco was talking about the fact that it makes four pence in every pound. And when you think about you know, that margin, that 4% profit margin, and you compare it with other sectors, it is teeny tiny. But you know, it, it was ever thus. And we do know that in some cases, lots of cases, the prices from last year are only just sort of filtering through onto our shelves this year because it takes time for the food to be grown and then that food has to be manufactured and then, of course, it has to end up on our shelves. So you just think about you know, the, the glass jars, the extra cost of making those, the transportation costs, the plastic, the fertiliser... All of those things are sort of coming together on the products on the shelves now. And because of climate issues, some products are also in short supply. Or here in the UK, we're having to source them from outside of the UK. I'm thinking about things like potatoes. Now, should there be some kind of overall price control measure? Supermarkets said, no, it's not a good idea because actually it it could end up impacting things the wrong way. Although we do know that the Competition and Markets Authority has been taking a good long look at what's been going on in supermarkets. And the Morrison's boss, David Potts, did admit yesterday that it had hiked the price of fuel um, quite considerably. And in fact, the CMA report will show that fuel margins at supermarkets have doubled to 8% since 2017. So there are questions to be answered by supermarkets, but potentially not on food.
1: Well, I know that there's been other sectors under scrutiny, particularly as we're recording this, because um, the Chancellor has been meeting with sort of an alphabet full of regulators, haven't they, Danny?
0: Yeah, an alphabet soup. Ofgem, ofcom, off what? The CMA. Okay. So, yeah, almost all the letters there. Um, now, of course, it has been thrown sort of almost sort of off kilter by Thames Water, um, but we'll get to that in just a moment. But, yes, all of these regulators have been... Asked what they're doing about the increased cost being passed on to the consumer. Yeah, there, there are concerns. Some companies are boosting their profits at the expense of customers. You know, really exploiting this high inflation that we've got at the moment, and and really hurting the consumer. Now, one of the areas, as I say, where close attention is being paid is water, because we had reports in The Times this morning that the average water bill is set to rise by 40% plus inflation next year. Now, I don't know about you, Dan, but that's not the kind of news that I want to hear when I'm thinking about my monthly outgoings at the moment. Um, But also... I mean, yesterday, did it catch you off guard the news that Sarah Bentley, the boss of Thames Water, quit after just two years in the job?
1: No, I didn't see that news.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it came sort of out the blue late yesterday afternoon and then all the speculation about why she was leaving in the middle of a turnaround and you know, had there been disagreement about how this turnaround plan was being uh, facilitated, had there been disagreement about the amount of cash that was going to be required, and whether or not investors could be persuaded to hand over that cash? Bear in mind, Thames Water investors um, haven't had a dividend payment in six years, so. So wind forward 12 hours, and I woke up this morning to the news that um, Sky News was reporting that potentially there was a huge issue with Thames Water because debt, £14 billion worth, now is becoming absolutely untenable, but they're struggling to service that debt because interest rates have gone up so much. They've also, of course, had the cost of energy. Remember, those big pumping stations take huge amounts of energy. Wages have gone up. And at the same time, the regulator and the public are really honing in on the need to deal with environmental issues, spills and leakages, and calls for that, calls for further investments reached fever-pitched. So we now have learned via Sky News that the government and the regulator have been holding talks with Thames Water about potential contingency plans if it collapses. One possibility, of course, is that it could go the way of bulb energy and be temporarily taken into public ownership, a sort of operator of last resort via a special administration regime. Now, as I say, a lot of the focus has been on the huge levels of debt that Thames Water has, but also concern about the regulator itself, the role that it has played in allowing huge billions, tens of billions of dividends to be taken out of water companies since it was privatised back in the late 1980s, while at the same time tens of billions of pounds worth of debt, I think it's about £60 billion now across all the water companies of debt that is owed. Now, we know that Thames Water is is in a particularly sticky situation. Um, We know, though, that all water companies are under pressure to spend more money modernizing the network, which then, of course, raises questions for shareholders of publicly listed water companies about what the future might look like. Greater regulatory scrutiny, more demand to spend cash on improving infrastructure and potentially those investments which had been traditionally seen as safe, high dividend stocks really being pushed into a different category and um, the the three um, on the footsie uh, today um, have seen shares fall just a little bit as investors sort of um, take a look at what's going on. Now, of course, listed companies are under far greater scrutiny in terms of their finances, but the landscape certainly seems to be changing. And you know, extra costs on your water bill, particularly when you're at a point where you're seeing that investors particularly in the past, have taken huge chunks of cash out of these companies is just leaving a bad taste, especially at a time when everything seems to be going up because price rises are also in focus when it comes to car insurance.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. How, I know that you do drive, Danny, but I don't know. Well, have you had your you know, your renewal through for the car insurance? Because if you haven't, you better get ready for a, <laughs> quite a shock. You know, I've been reading about people sort of saying 40, 50% rise. And, and this is for drivers with no accidents or claims. And, you know, we've just had some data from the ONS saying, you know, UK premiums for car insurance up 43% on last year. You know, you, you compare that to 8.7%. For you know, just normal inflation, it shows that you know there's something. You know, people going, well, this is ridiculous. Why is this going on? So, um, perhaps if I if I sort of take a step back, um, sort of set the scene, you'll you, you'll understand why this is happening. Um, so, if, during COVID, obviously fewer people were driving, so less accidents, um, and we didn't. So therefore, we didn't see this big rise in insurance premiums. Now, last year, the general insurance industry, which is you know, essentially home home insurance and sort of motor insurance, they got caught out by a series of negative events. So, home insurers um, suffered. The summer was too hot, so they had subsidence claims. The winter was too cold, so lots of people sort of claiming for sort of burst pipes. So, um, we had to deal with all that. And if you've got motor insurance as well, you've got. Um, <laughs> The sharp rise in the cost of secondhand cars and um, and parts and labour. So so naturally, you know, the industry as a whole is of thinking, oh, God, we've had a, such a terrible time. Well, the natural thing is to push up these premiums. So... Um, what I've just been reading is that it's not simply about insurers looking at what might happen to an individual over the next 12 months, but actually they're thinking 24 months in advance. So, because you you might have an accident, say in 11 months time, it's going to take some while for those sort of that claim to be agreed and paid out, which means insurer needs to think about what's the rate of inflation up to two years out. So, um, yeah, it's it's not good, but there are some things that you can do to potentially get those premiums down a little bit. One is having a dash cam. Um, according to switch some providers will give you a discount of up to 20% if you've got a dash cam. They think it will make you drive more safely. Um, I guess in the same way as having a sort of a black box policy can, can cut costs as well. So you know, a dash cam for 40 pounds at the low end Yeah, you know, i don't know four five hundred pounds at the top end so so obviously you've got to pay out money to in in the first place it's a bit of an investment but you know perhaps the payoff is that if your insurance policy has gone up by so much you know that that dash cam will be paid off um you know fairly quickly but what's interesting to me is despite these premiums going up shares in motor insurance companies not going up at all I mean Admiral's been all over the place direct line has gone from bad to worse on the stock market I think here investors are worried it's going to need to raise lots more money to shore up its balance sheet so all in all you know there's nothing there's nothing good to say about the car insurance sector at the moment because you know, you'll you feel it in your pocket and if you're an investor you're, you're, you know, you're sort of nursing you know, perhaps not very good returns from this for what used to be quite a reliable sector
0: I have to get car insurance for my soon-to-be 17-year-old daughter to learn to drive, and I think it's fair to say that I am absolutely dreading that number.
1: Well, I think the fact that you drive a Ferrari and a uh, (laughs) 17-year-old will suggest you're looking at thousands and thousands of pounds.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that Ford Fiesta looks good. (laughs) Um, Look, let's now roll the dice, Dan, and I think that we should seriously look into the profitability of creating a Fraser's-themed Monopoly game. I think we'd get a lot of use out of it, but I think that we should definitely have a money and market-sponsored Fraser's Monopoly game because they're just buying up a lot.
1: Yeah, it does feel like it. You know, you, you've got a board of retail companies, whatever they, they, they land on, they're just buy a stake of it. And so, <laughs> you know, so for, for, for those who aren't perhaps familiar with phrases, it's best known for Sports Direct. That's his that's its biggest brand, but it it has stakes in lots of other businesses. Now it, it it owns some of them outright, like um Game Group, um, but it also has sort of stakes in, in companies on the stock market. So over the last week, it's seen a lot of activity. So the, the latest one is it's been increasing its stake in AO, um, so the online seller of fridges, uh, washing machines. So it, it now owns just over 22% of that business. What's quite remarkable is that at the start of June, it didn't own anything in it. So <laughs> I mean, this is this is sort of quite rapid estate building here. Now, it picked up a big chunk of those shares from OD Asset Management, which is kind of got a a line of customers trying to pull money out of their funds. So um, that business was having to sell investments to raise cash. Because course, Fraser's is never one to sort of miss an opportunity. So um, it's also been taking stakes in Boohoo and Curry's as well. So um, I guess you're going, hang on a minute, Sports Direct's owner is buying... A stake in curries, you know what, what? going from a cricket bat to a laptop? It's still sort of it's like a step too far, really. But you, know, I guess, you need to see phrases as being a group of retail businesses because if you, if you go onto its onto its website, it's talking about how it's trying to own the the, the most loved retail brand. So, um, I guess if it's got a stake in AO and a stake in curries, it, it should get it a, an audience with the people, you know. That know lots within those companies so it could find out you know let's say it wants to do more in electronics um you know the, the guys in curries will be able to tell them what's going on you know of course being a major shareholder means it will it, have a seat at the table sort of thing um in terms of getting an audience not 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 particularly on the board but um you know having these conversations there's already talk that Perhaps, you know, the phrases wants to use its game, um, computer game sort of um, business. Could, could it stick some concessions into curry stores? Now with Boohoo and ASOS, um, again here, I think it sort of sees itself as sort of a, a, a sort of a, a fashion seller. Um, I know I take my daughter sometimes into Sports Direct. She wants to buy you know, a top, but they're all, I don't know, the brands are a bit tired. So maybe it could talk to ASOS and, and Boohoo. You know, how can we help us get some, Sort of more fashionable clothes in our shops, um, but one thing you must sort of consider here is that Fraser's doesn't particularly like to do takeovers. It likes to buy things out of administration because it, it just wants to get the cheapest deal possible. And, and I don't think there's any thought that any of these businesses it's been buying into recently are in such bad state um, that you know that we're talking administration. But they all have seen share price weakness recently, um, and so I guess you know it's, it's, this is classic behaviour for was well, classic behaviour for Mike Ashley, who's who's the he owns about seventy percent of of um, phrases. He doesn't he's not the chief executive anymore, but he's clearly <laughs> behind the scenes, sort of trying to um, you know in the driving seat. What, uh, I guess is another way to say it. So yeah, I mean a monopoly board is is the absolute perfect way of describing what what's going on with that business now.
0: Now, be thankful that your daughter is asking you to take her into sports direct to buy clothing and not flannels. Because yeah. let me tell you, when they start asking you to go into flannels and you see the price tag associated with some of their rather interesting fashions, which is the opposite. It is cutting edge stuff, I'm told. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: Obviously, yeah, Fl- flannels being another one of Fraser's brands, the sort of more upmarket, but yeah, I'm fortunate enough to have never been in one of their stores.
0: <laughs> just wait. That delight will come to you. Um, you were just talking about Boohoo. Um, of course, uh, Fraser's does own a stake in the online fashion giant, um, but Boohoo itself also owns a stake in Revolution Beauty, which is a, a an online cosmetic company. Um, it owns about... 26, 27% Um, and there has been an almighty spat going on at Revolution Beauty and Boohoo was one of the 74% of investors who recently voted to oust the company's three most senior directors. Okay, so far so good. Except then the remaining director decided actually, I'm going to bring them straight back onto the board. So Boohoo, who had wanted to bring in his own guys to shepherd the ship, um, is now absolutely furious. Revolution Beauty says um, Boohoo's actions are um, value destructive, opportunistic and self-serving. And uh, Boohoo saying that Revolution Beauty is self-serving. Now, it has gone back, um, restarted trading today on London's junior AIM market, and I was watching shares, and they're up almost 40% at lunch on Wednesday. They were, of course, suspended in September after an accounting uh, probe, um, found all sorts of, of things going on there. So this is an interesting spat. It is boardroom shenanigans at their most outlandish and at the moment it seems like revolution beauty is got the upper hand but i think for a lot of investors they'll be wondering a what on earth is going on b what will boohoo do about it and c) whether or not there is any kind of takeover in the offing
1: well i guess you are definitely one to watch but um right it's time for this week's fund manager interview. you ever wondered how an investment trust changes over the years? Well, Dunedin Income Trust started out in Scotland 150 years ago as a way for people to invest in U.S. railroads.
0: See, that sounds really cool. I, I quite like the idea <laughs> of investing in U.S. railroads. Um, massive massive railroad network and those beasts as they uh, drive across the uh, country is just astonishing to watch. Today is, of course, a very different beast, though, as Dan found out when he spoke to manager Ben Ritchie. So,
1: Ben, how did a textile worker in Scotland in the 1870s end up launching what at the time was a US-focused investment trust, but it still
2: exists today under the name of Dunedin Income Growth? But it's a, it's, yeah it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable story, I guess go, going back you know 150 years. Um, if, if, we, if we think in, in 2023 we, we've been celebrating the 150th anniversary of the trust. Um, and I, I guess it goes back to do a sort of I, I guess a desire to create collective vehicles, to invest uh, overseas in, in new ventures, but also to create uh, permanent capital. And I guess that, that is what the, the purpose of investment trusts has, has been to collect, create collective vehicles. That it could allow, uh, I guess, to some degree, the the man or woman in the street uh, to be able to invest a small fraction in a larger venture, um, and probably brought uh, into reality the ability to be able to do that in a way that that didn't exist before uh, for uh, for for investors. Um, And I think we'd seen the creation of the F and C trust five or six years earlier. I think it was 1868, um, and then in Scotland in. 1873, they launched the Scottish American Investment Trust, which many years later became uh, the Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust. but um, I think the original purpose was to invest in what was an emerging market back in those days, which was the creation of railroads in in, in North America. You had the expansion west uh, after the Louisiana Land Purchase and the creation of you know ginormous quantities of railroad infrastructure, and that and that needed to be paid for. Um, and having probably been through the, the various railroad booms and busts in europe uh in the in the, in the in the sort of mid part of the 19th century there was appetite to participate in in similar ventures um in in america at, at the time so i think it's that combination of a, a developing and emerging financial infrastructure appetite uh to invest and and the creation of a, of a, of a new market uh in many ways those factors are similar today when we see, see we see new developments emerging in in, in in financial markets, and and it was just so happened that that was the start of, uh, of Dunedin 150 years ago. That obviously you know today you can just log on to the internet, you can research pretty much any company in the world, can't you? Fa-
1: fairly easily. But obviously, go back to 1873, there were no phones, no cars, no airlines. So I just it's quite interesting. How did the person who set up what is now Dunedin uh, Inc and Growth Trust? How did they actually? Get the information on you know U.S. investments. You know, were they having to you know go on a boat to travel to America to get to find out what's going on?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's always one of these things where where I I, I think find myself wondering about about these things in a lot of ways. Like, how on earth did anybody do anything in in, the, in some in some of these situations given given the information and the time and, and how it was possible to be able to. To be able to achieve those to be able to achieve those things um you know I suspect uh, in, in reality uh, money came uh, to London uh, or to Edinburgh uh, or people came to those markets looking for money to fund uh, their ventures um, and they were investing in bonds that were you know, effectively being listed on in, in, in those in those capital markets so I, I suspect that at the time yes there probably was some travel to, to visit some of these assets that make sure that they actually existed uh, but I think that the, the reality was that, that there were, uh, you know, developing capital markets in in major UK cities. Um, ventures were looking to raise money to build out uh, the railroads, and and essentially they were making pitches and presentations to that effect uh, in 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 London um, and and probably around the UK. Um, and, and so, to that extent, I suspect actually it wasn't that different uh, to how we do things today. For all the development of modern technology, you're still sitting very often in a room or on a on a conference call or a video call with somebody explaining a pitch to you um, and then you're making a decision as to whether you're not going to invest. And essentially, I don't think that really has changed a great deal over that 150 years. Uh, And of course, uh, we do today visit companies, we do our due diligence. um, And I suspect that that process happened then as well, just in a a sort of slower, more elongated fashion. But essentially, I think that principle, people coming to venues for capital markets and looking to raise money, that hasn't changed actually that much. Uh, in in the last hundred and fifty years,
1: I know when when people look at investment trusts today, quite quite a few have been around for quite a while. Um, investors like the idea that there's been a sort of a consistent investment process. So um, I just wondered whether you've got any do you have any records of you know what what was the process with with you know what was done even when it's when it first launched. Um, you know, were they looking for certain things, and, and is that exactly what you look for in, in sort of companies today, or, or has it sort of evolved over time?
2: Yeah, I think things have absolutely changed, and the, and the management company of the of the of the business has, has changed a few times, has changed a few times over the years. And uh, it's originally named the, the Scottish American Investment uh, Trust, uh, the Dunedin brand actually goes back to a, a company that that I think disappeared in the in the early nineties. Um, And I think it was rebranded as Dunedin. I think in the seventies, there there is another Scottish American Investment Trust. There were a series of of fundraisings made uh, in in sort of follow-on years. So the Saints, which today is run by uh, run by Bailey Gifford, which I think was the second Scottish American Investment Trust. And there are other companies with similar names that still exist today. Uh, But the decision was taken to to rebrand back in the back in the seventies, and and the name is and the name is stuck. And I think. Like one of the reasons why it does still carry some resonance, I think, is that connection with with its geography. So Dunedin re- sort of resonant of of Dundee where it was founded, and and, and with a reference to Edinburgh and Scottish heritage. Trust those, I think, are quite nice things, and it's quite it's quite nice to have that connection um, with uh, with the past and with the history. So I think that the processes have changed the asset class. Which we're investing in has changed, but you know, actually looking back at their history, you know, one of the differentiators uh, that, that Robert Fleming made at the time of, of launching the trust was, was his desire to get on the ground and, and go and visit uh, the potential investments, Um and that's something which we which we do carry carry through to today. And I suppose it, again, it, it sort of does come back a little bit to while while the asset class has changed and we're investing in. You know, Today and primarily UK with, with Southern European equities. In fact, then we're, they were investing in North American railroad bonds. I don't really think the fundamental principles of investing have changed a great deal. You know, uh, I had one of my interns asking me the other day about whether they should read the uh, *Intelligence Investor* by, by Ben Graham. I think that was published seventy-five or eighty years ago. It's probably still considered the sort of base Bible of equity investors today. So. The fundamental principles of identifying undervalued cash flows and and looking to invest money into those don't really change. I, I think the tools we use, um, uh, the, the the sort of it's a process which we apply. Yes, they change, but I think the philosophy remains remains pretty remains pretty consistent of looking to identify those undervalued those undervalued opportunities. And Dunedin's also had that element of of, of delivering attractive levels of income back to its investors over time as well so again that's something which which carries uh, carries through to today even though the asset class is uh, is somewhat different
1: obviously over the sort of the 150 years of its history um we've we'll seen you know wars um, economic boom and bust and, you know, you know, everything you can think, imagine, you know, with inflation, everything that, you know, pe- people ask today, like, well, what, what you know, in a, in a previous situation, what did, well, where should I invest? I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, are all the experiences of past fund managers on the investment trust all, all documented? I, I just wonder whether you've got this brilliant Bible of, um, you can look back and see what 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 did they do in these
2: situations? Yeah, well, it's, it's very interesting because, um, John Newlands uh, wrote a, uh, a very detailed history of the of the trust um, a few years ago now, um, uh, which is available on the on the leading growth website, and that does detail the various panics and crises that the that the company has existed through. And I think there was a fairly major crisis at the time of its founding back in 1873, and and many of these uh, financial crises today have been been long forgotten. I think we remember that the Great Depression in 1929 but there were others panics at 1906 bank runs at various times and then of course uh, the damage caused by by the second world War the challenges of the first world war um you know there were a series of of, of, of significant events during the during the 1970s hyperinflation various other wars and conflicts um you know there's always been and there always will be uh you know events and challenges that 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 uh, Investors have to have to tackle with. So, I think that's always. I think that's always. It's always quite fascinating in terms of the sort of personal connection with the trust. Uh, I've been involved in in its management in some form or other, um, probably for about twenty years. So, Dunedin came into the Aberdeen uh, stable of investment trusts with the acquisition of Edinburgh Fund Managers back in in two thousand and three, and I had just started as a, as a graduate. I'd been at the Aberdeen for about a year at that time, and so Dunedin was a, a trust that I. Uh, you know, came to know, um, uh, and back then uh, run by a gentleman called David Biddy. David uh, subsequently retired. Um, uh, another another fund manager, Chu Chong, ran it for a, a number of years. Who was one of one of my bosses early on. Um, and I also got to know a gentleman called Ian Massey, who also uh, was involved in, in managing the, the portfolio uh, in, in prior years as well. Who then later on uh, came to have an investor relations uh, role with the trust. And I've been uh, the sort of lead co-manager on the trust for the last uh, since 2016. So there's a lot of history there, and a lot of, of people and experiences to be able to build on. And certainly, as a, as a company and as an investment, it, it has a certain uh, degree of um, a sort of special place I think in my investing heart because it does have that that continuity of tenure, that sort of sense of independence, and the long history, which I think always makes it quite a, a compelling and interesting and interesting angle. And I think it is. Were always worth reflecting on when you go into tough times and it, and it may be feels a little bit like tough times at the moment in the uk that would you know will have been through these sorts of situations in the past companies will have dealt with the challenges of rising interest rates declining demand whatever else it might be and i think that should always give us some confidence that over the longer term it'll probably be okay even if at the short term it, it can feel can feel pretty difficult and there are, you know there are plenty of examples that John details in his book and that I've witnessed over the last twenty years of, of those kind of situations, and I think that's a, that's a healthy bit of history to be able to dig into to help us help guide us in the future.
1: So obviously, the, you know, that brings us to to the sort of the present day. What are you actually you, what are you trying to do with this trust? And I, I don't know whether it's there's a way of describing it to to make it stand out from sort of perhaps other sort of UK focused equity funds and trusts.
2: Yeah, it's a great it's a great question because it's a it's a crowded space and it's a very interesting space so we're we're in the uk equity income uh, uh class of the of the uh sort of investment trust world and, and there are eighteen 20 other trusts within that space to around a, a market cap of about five hundred million is probably fairly mid-sized in terms of its in terms of its scale so how do we want to stand out to our investors and potential future investors in that situation well first of all we really want to be known as a, a very consistent deliverer of attractive investment returns on a total return basis. So we want to deliver that very attractive total return. We also want to be known as a, as a reliable and consistent deliverer of income. Um, and the trust has grown its dividend or held it every year for the last the for last 42 years. Um, so those things I think are very important in terms of what we're offering our end investor. The other thing that we do um, is uh, do that within a sustainable uh, framework. So we have, um, a sustainable approach, which excludes about 20% of the market due to various concerns around almond production, tobacco, uh, energy, uh, various other areas. We look to try and manage the risks on the downside. And so for investors that are looking for a more sustainable approach to UK income generation, then Dunedin does stand out and so we're the only trust. Uh, in the space that has anything like that applied. In fact, we're one of the very few investment trusts that have any kind of uh, sustainable overlay in the mainstream equity space. Uh, and then on top of that, we also invest up to 25% of our capital overseas. So that gives us quite a lot of flexibility uh, in terms of what we're able to invest in compared to your your normal uh, UK-orientated investment trust. And then I would just say the other elements that I think come to pass in how we do things is that we are very relaxed. About being very different, both to peers uh, and the benchmark. And I think that's really important because the one thing that you absolutely need to be able to do in order to deliver outperformance, and I would say underperformance, is to be different. Because if you aren't, then you're just going to deliver the benchmark return over time. And that's something which we are very comfortable with. So we have a very high active share for a UK equity income fund over 80%. Uh, we have a pretty concentrated portfolio around 35 holdings, um, and we have about 50% of our capital in our our top 10 positions. So we're willing to back our convictions. uh, We're willing to uh, have a concentrated portfolio, uh, and we want to be able to deliver those attractive total returns and consistent income performance uh, within that sustainable overlay, and and do it in a way where we've got the best chance uh, of of being able to deliver that um, over the longer term. Now, there'll be the odd year. Uh, where you know, we don't deliver on, on the total return against the market or against our peers, um, you know, we do have a, a, a sort of quality growth approach, which we think fits well with the sustainability approach and also with that long-term uh, approach which we have. But that means some years we will be a little out of kilter with the, with where everyone else is. But over the longer term, you know, the track record has been pretty strong, and it's something we're you know, we're very pleased.
1: Ben Ritchie from Dunedin Income Growth Investment Trust, thank you so
2: much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure.
0: Dan talking to Ben Ritchie from Dunedin Income Trust, and that's all we've got time for this week. Next week, I'll be joined by Laura. We'll mull over the latest UK GDP figures as well as all the markets news.
1: Plus, I'll be chatting to Migo about investment trust opportunities. But for this episode, we're done and dusted. Thank you very much for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you've ever wondered how your childhood impacts your current financial decisions, do hunt out our other AJ Bell podcast, Money Matters, for an eye-opening episode. Till next time, thank you very much for listening.
0: Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes, and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine.